Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Welcome back to the book of Jonah. Last week, we started to look at this book and noted some important things about it. The first being that this book is far more about God using Jonah's life as a message rather than the actual words he would speak. And the story begins by God commissioning Jonah to go to Nineveh and call them out. God knows their evil, and he won't stand for it much longer. And so Jonah gets this word from the Lord, and he buys a one-way ticket in the opposite direction. He doesn't go to Nineveh. In fact, he tries to get out to sea. And this is where we pick up today. Jonah trying to flee the presence of God. He's on a boat. He's trying to get out. And God is far more present than Jonah cares for. Let's listen to what it says in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. There it is again, that name in verse 4. That name, this isn't just the Lord. This isn't just a God. This is the one and only God, and his name is Yahweh. And it stands over creation. Every part of it is in his control. He is sovereign. This is an antagonistic message toward Jonah. He's saying, you might be disobeying Jonah, but creation will not. It will do exactly as I say. And so he throws, he hurls this intense wind upon the sea. Most likely, this would have been the Mediterranean Sea. And we don't know exactly how long they were out on the sea or how long they had journeyed. It doesn't seem like it was very far because we'll become, we'll, we'll see that they could see the land not very far away. And what happens is that this storm becomes so fierce, so intense that it actually threatens to rip this entire ship to shreds. The storm was powerful, so powerful that the mariners themselves, the sailors who had been in this profession for a while, were afraid. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they probably have seen, had seen a storm before, but not like this. They had become so afraid that they had begun throwing all of their belongings, all of the things of value out of the ship, trying to save themselves, hoping it would help. They were so afraid they were calling out to their gods, all of these different gods, hoping that one of them might hear them and care enough to help. Meanwhile, Jonah is fast asleep in the boat, just chilling, just sleeping. And I can only imagine that the captain must have been surprised to find this man sleeping through the storm, right? And, and he goes down and he wakes him up. And what does he say? Well, it's ironic, actually. It's really similar commands to what God had initially commissioned Jonah with. Arise, call. And an ironic twist, Jonah's life is disrupted once more by this commission. And here we see this Gentile asking Jonah to call upon his God that he might save them. The very thing God wants Jonah to do for Nineveh. See, the captain of the ship determines that this storm must have divine origins, and everyone should begin calling upon a God to come help them, or they're all going to die. Let's see how it continues in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, 
and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Casting lots was really a a pretty popular way of trying to discover guilt, but also trying to understand divine guidance, what you were supposed to do. And it's really, it's popular even within the Bible. In 1 Samuel 14, we see Saul and Jonathan in a similar arrangement, and Esther, um, and even in the New Testament, when the apostles are trying to replace Judas, and they're trying to understand who the next apostle is going to be. And in the the near ancient, uh, the ancient Near East in general, this was just a popular practice. And here's what they would do. They would get two stones or pebbles, and they would color them, and they would throw them. And if they both landed on the dark side, that meant no. And if they both landed on the light side, that meant yes. And if one man landed on the light side and one landed on the dark side, that meant throw again. And this that's what they would do to try to determine either, again, who was guilty for something or uh, what they were supposed to do, what God was leading them to do. And it's important to note in light of this that Proverbs 16 adds a caveat to this. It, it acknowledges that one may cast lots, but every decision is ultimately God's. It ultimately belongs to God. Ultimately, he's the one who decides what happens in all creation. And it's clear that although the lot fell to Jonah, they really just did not take him and throw him over. They felt uncomfortable. They needed more information. They wanted to inquire more about who this guy was and what was going on and what they needed to do to get this situation right so that they could all live. And so they ask him five different questions. What evil has been committed? What do you do for a living? Where are you from? What is your heritage? And what people do you call your own? And Jonah begins to answer this. First, by saying, I am a Hebrew. Now, this term was one that seems to be used by lots of different other nations in the surrounding area. And in fact, since they spoke Hebrew, it might be that this term originated just from their dialect, but we aren't quite sure. The point is that this term, I am a Hebrew, is associated with the God of the, who is Yahweh, the living God, the God over all creation, which is what he goes into next. He says, I fear the Lord, again, Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And this term, I fear, that word fear could also be translated as worship or believe. Now, what I think is interesting is that some commentators actually say that Jonah has kind of ignored some of the questions that the sailors have asked him, but I actually think he's answering it a little bit more completely than than maybe at first glance. Because the truth is that who Jonah is is wrapped up in these two identities. A Hebrew who is working for God, Yahweh, a specific God who is the only God who is over all things, all of creation. You see, Jonah is a prophet, He's from the promised land, the place where God dwells, but he's running from it. And he's a Hebrew. He's wrapped up into the story of what has taken place before with with the liberation and freedom that God has brought to this people. This isn't just one God out of many. And Jonah is really emphatic to make this clear. It's the living God. Over all creation, that's not reduced to being a sun god or a moon god or a wheat god. No, this is the one true and living God. 
Now, what was his evil? What did Jonah do that was so bad? He had deliberately disobeyed God's command, and he was running from him. And again, we see the irony of the story. You see, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to tell them about their evil so that they don't perish. And here, Jonah is on a ship being threatened by death because of his own evil. And God is trying to help Jonah begin to see through his life, through the events taking place, that mercy and justice can be possible. But the sailors in the midst of all this were beginning to hear of Yahweh. They were beginning to hear of who he was. And this is what they begin to say in verse 11. Then they said to him, Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Their question is pretty fair. They come to Jonah and they're like, hey, you seem to be the cause of this. What do we need to do to calm the storm? Jonah answers, you have to throw me over. You see, Jonah knew, he acknowledged the fact that his disobedience was the reason the storm was happening. He deserved death, and he believed death would be the only thing that would satisfy the wrath of God. Now, why the sailors don't immediately throw him over, I don't know. Maybe it was compassion. Maybe they were like, hey, this guy deserves a second chance, all right? We all make mistakes, we all have sins, we all disobey, and so they start trying to get back to land, perhaps, Maybe it's financial. Maybe they're like, no, we need to get back to land so that this guy can give us the money that he owes us, and then God can do it with him whatever he pleases. Perhaps. But I think that they they saved him and tried to get back to land because their allegiance had changed. You see, they began to see that the storm was caused by God, and God was trying to get Jonah's attention. They knew that Jonah had fleed God's presence, that he was running from him. And so God didn't want Jonah dead, but obedient. And if they could just get Jonah back to land, back on mission, back to doing the thing God called them to do, that would be the best case scenario. But when the storm wouldn't let up, they began to pray. And it's amazing. These Gentile sinners were just a second ago, calling out to their random gods. And now they're calling out to the true one. And they call out, God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Don't let the blood of this man be on our life. We are simply trying to do what you ask us to do. We're trying to get him back to land. If not, we want to do whatever you want us to do. And they came to see that it was to throw Jonah over. And so they throw Jonah over. And the storm is silenced calm. And they can't believe it. It says that they feared Yahweh in light of this. Again, that word fear, it can mean worship or believe. But the point is, it really seems like a conversion has happened. 
It's amazing. In, a, in this ironic twist, they make these sacrifices and vows, and Jonah's life becomes a stage for God's authority and mercy to be displayed. And Jonah may not have wanted to speak God's word, but it was revealing itself powerfully nonetheless to these Gentile sinners who now knew Yahweh. Church, don't miss this. There's a lot of people who don't know Christ. A lot of people. And they all look different, they all behave differently, but sometimes it's precisely those who we don't think would accept the message of God's mercy who are most ripe to receive it. The circumstances, they're all around us. The people, they're all around us, all in need of the mercy of God and church. This includes us. It includes you. This is the point. You see, we're all in the midst of perishing. The wrath of God is coming to satisfy his justice, and we all deserve to be thrown off the boat but someone else would be. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is the one sacrifice himself to be hurled into the sea. He's the one that would be thrown in. And you say, how could that be? Jonah was guilty. Jonah deserved it, but not Jesus. How could, how could he be the substitute? Because if there's anything the cross teaches us, it is that. Jesus did not just erase our sin. He took it upon himself. That the wrath of God, the justice of God would be satisfied and complete, not in our death, but in Jesus. And he would go to the grave for three days, three nights, and the storm silenced. Seems crazy, doesn't it? It seems unjust that a good man would die for evil people, but it's not unjust. It's mercy. And God loves mercy. But sometimes, sometimes we hate mercy because it feels unjust. It feels unjust that this could ever happen. But Jesus teaches us that regardless of who we are, of what we become and what have been done to us, that mercy and justice is still possible, that we can love it at all times and that it can change everything and everyone. And we're not done seeing God's mercy yet. Listen to what it says in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You see, Jonah was thrown to his death, but rescued because the mercy of God came and swallowed him in a fish. And we see once more God's sovereignty, God's authority, God's power over creation at work. He's not done with Jonah yet. And we look forward to looking at chapter two to see what God will do next. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.